Welcome to The Rebound, where we'll explore the issues facing supply chain managers as our industry gets back up and running in a post-COVID world. This podcast is hosted by Abe Eskenazi, CEO of the Association for Supply Chain Management, and Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Abe and Bob welcome your comments. Now to today's episode. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of The Rebound, Yossi Sheffi and the Magic Conveyor Belt. I'm Bob Troublecock. And I'm Abe Eskenazi. And joining us today is Yossi Sheffi. I don't think Yossi needs an introduction to this audience, but just in case, he's a professor at MIT, where he's also the director of the Center for Transportation and Logistics and the director and founder of the Master of Engineering and Logistics program. And if those aren't enough, Yossi is the author of at least nine books, including his latest, The Magic Conveyor Belt, Supply Chains, AI, and The Future of Work. Yossi, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad to have you. You know, the last time we had you as a guest, I think we've had you after uh, every recent book has come out, but the last time was following the publication of A Shot in the Arm. That was your book on the development of the COVID vaccines. Now, that was a time of incredible disruption. As you look at things today, as we've you know come out of COVID, how do you assess the state of supply chain today? You know, what's working? Where are we struggling? And then what responses to the pandemic do you think are permanent? Okay, so first of all, I think that, let me get rid of one misconception and broke down. In fact, my point is that supply, it was their, their finest hour, so to speak because the pandemic was not created by supply chain managers. It was created by uh, outside forces and logistics managers, supply chain manager, procurement, distribution, what have you, reacted valiantly. I mean, think about just the food. You know, from one day to the next, restaurants were closed, universities were closed, industrial parks were closed, yet the food kept coming. And uh, only people in the, in the business understand that the machinery that was used to send stuff to, say, restaurant is not the same machinery that is used to pack stuff for supermarket with all the ingredients on the, uh, on the package. So the machinery was not there. People changed the, their eating habit. They had less fresh food, a lot more comfort food, bread, pasta, cans. Yet nobody went hungry. By and large, it worked extremely well. So it, it's... It drives me nuts when people are saying that the supply chain was broken. No, supply chain acted under incredible, incredibly difficult condition and worked well. And this, of course, created several things. First of all, it uh, elevated the role of supply chain in cooperation, in the media, and with the government. But it also gave, I thought, in I saw in few organizations a newfound confidence. Hey, we went through this. We can go through anything. And uh, also a lot of um, collaboration, collaborations that uh, were generated during the pandemic when everybody was facing the same danger held on. And companies are, relationship even between competitors are more, are better than they were before. Now, in terms of the other part of the question, uh, I should say what, what we are still struggling. Of course, we are still struggling with transportation, procurement, but mostly now, a lot of inventory in the system, which is a result of so-called bullwhip effect. 
and it was we could have predicted it and in fact i predicted a year more over a year ago i wrote a blog saying there will be too much inventory in the system because everybody was over ordering they thought that the uh, demand during the pandemic will continue forever well nothing nothing goes forever so a lot of retailers a lot of manufacturers have tremendous amount of inventory which impacts the system they order less so suppliers having to lay people off we saw a lot of people are laying people off and we are slowly marching into a recession i still think we'll have a recession not sure how deep it's going to be so we're, there's still some uh, struggling there and of course because of this the rates of um, transportation logistics other services are are low and people are struggling anyway the last part of the question had to do with the response to the pandemic that uh, what i think is permanent i think a lot less than what people think i think that at the end the main pressure on corporations is to cut cost increase service increase revenue and it is a, there's a lot of talk about um, reshoring and uh, keeping more inventory and getting out of china yes on the margin yes there we see some companies are starting to move out of china in many cases it is only the last stage of production the the assembly and so people are doing the last stage in say vietnam so they can put a label of made in vietnam rather than in china but a lot of the deep supply chain many many tiers are still in china and companies invested decades and billions of dollars in building it in china it's not easy to get uh, out of china we see some regionalization in order to create more resilience some companies are moving out of china moving towards you know the americas or the extended eu but it is not yet a tsunami we see some of it, it i'm not sure how much of it will stay the last point is that uh, people are talking about the end of just in time uh, the media is talking but doesn't understand just in time they think that just in time is a uh, a method to reduce cost so we'll have less inventory they don't understand that just in time is a method to create high quality uh, the original toyota system toyota manufacturing system was there in order to increase quality as a result of increased quality you have less rework less uh, um, less recalls and of course in general lower cost so that's what um, JIT and the Toyota manufacturing system in general are, are about, and this is not going away. So anyway, you gave you a long answer to a short question. Yossi, let's jump into uh, your new book. Um, what was the catalyst for writing it? Why was this the right time uh, to tell the story? The right time to tell the story was that people were bugging my wife. They said, we hear so much about supply chain. I'm not talking about people in the profession. I'm talking about friends, neighbors. Your husband is in supply chain. What is this? What, what is this thing that people are talking about? I mean, for us in the profession, it's amazing that people have no clue, but uh, most people have no clue. So rather than uh, meet every one of my wife's friends and neighbors one-on-one, -on -one, I decided to write the book. And the beginning of the book is explaining the uh, kind of what supply chains are but more than that, trying to explain the complexity and trying to get people to a mindset that they should not be you know, upset when something, some item is not in the supermarket shelf or the Amazon warehouse. 
In fact, they should be amazed and delighted when it's there once they understand the complex processes that are involved in getting it there. They're involved in extracting material from the earth, going through a series of tiers of manufacturing of parts and, 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 and bigger parts and subassembly and getting in, into assembly, moving it all over the world, going through dozens of uh, legal and custom regimes and just getting it to the supermarket shelf. Once they understand it, they get a new appreciation for what it takes to do it. So I'm, I'm trying to get people to do it, to, to understand it. And then as I was writing it, I started to, to look at technology in supply chain because some of the people who I talked to still thought that logistic and supply chain management is about people driving trucks and moving boxes. And they don't understand the whole, the, the, the use of technology in the profession become a very sophisticated use of, of the latest uh, the method because the operation, because the networks are so complex and so wide ranging. So I started talking about the tech involved and I also ended up, this was just you know, luck or I don't know, appreciate when I started talking about AI, even before November last year when the ChatGPT came out and everybody started talking about AI, I even included something about ChatGPT kind of at the last minute inserted, inserted into the book. The book came out in February this year, so basically I had it done by December. So I included all this in order to explain to people the use of technology. And once I started talking about the use of technology, and I started to explain more about the role of AI in society in general, because this is you know, infrastructure technology that has a lot of implication, as, as we see today uh, in the media. You'll see first. Uh, now I know how to get uh, to you, and that's uh, to go through your wife. That's uh, thank you for that tidbit. Um, <laughs> secondly, have we created this problem with the expectations of just in time that you know prior to the pandemic there was very little hesitancy on individuals to you know order and receive things same day? Have we conditioned them to expect more than the supply chain can deliver? You, you clearly, the profession was a victim of its own success. The fact that we're delivering day in and day out, anything that people wanted unbelievably fast, people thought that that's how God created the earth, that that's normal. Nobody realized what it takes to do something like this until there was a disruption. And then they said, oh my God, this is what it takes. So I, I tried to highlight some of this uh, in my book. Uh, Yossi, I want to I want to pick a little bit at, at um, some of the things you and Abe just talked about, uh, both complexity and meeting consumer demand. Um, you know, uh, for years when I was the editor of Supply Chain Management Review, I was trying to get somebody to write something about complexity and how it was impacting supply chain management because it really fascinated me. And I know it's part of what you deal with. One of the things I wondered, I, I don't know if this is anecdotal or if it's a trend, but I've had conversations recently. Uh, with Procter & Gamble, with um, one of the major candy companies, Ferrera. One of the things they do is candy corn. I'll give you the example in a moment. And then with a, with a leading retailer. And the, the Ferrera, the candy corn um, episode was that during the pandemic, you know, because they had limited ingredients, they had to really rethink their uh, SKU portfolio about what they were going to make and what they weren't. 
And uh, the CEO of the company spent like four hours at Walmart one day watching what people bought in terms of candy corn. And he came back and said, we've put all this effort into like 27 flavors of candy corn, and they really only want one or two flavors. And so they did a skew rationalization. And, and P&G said that they did something similar during COVID, but they've continued, you know, post. And then the last little anecdote was a retailer I spoke with recently said, there's just less emphasis for them on trying to get like same day and next day delivery. Because what they found is, yeah, some customers want it, but most customers don't care um, as long as they get it, you know, within a reasonable period. Long setup for this, but, you know, A, how is complexity impacting the supply chain? But B, are you seeing companies, you know, rethinking, like, do we need all those SKUs? Do we really need to do next day delivery? For good or for worse, I've been around this for some time now. Every recession, we call it the, you know, the accordion phenomenon. Every recession, companies lower the number of SKUs, get less. And it does several things. First of all, it makes sure that these uh, best sellers are you know, on the shelves all the time. Second, it reduces cost because you have less changeovers in manufacturing. So you see, during the pandemic, I think I gave example uh, in, in my book, what is it? The, the people who make uh, progressive soup, I mean, got, got down from 90 varieties to 30 or 40 varieties. Interesting, you mentioned Procter & Gamble. We interviewed the CEO of Procter & Gamble at MIT, and he said something that goes to the other issue of how you know, tough it was and how heroic the, the, um, the effort were during the pandemic. He said, you know, Procter & Gable makes Tide, which is the number one detergent. They did not have all the ingredients every month. They had different ingredients. They were reformulating Tide continuously based on the ingredient that they have. And they had to do the quality and make sure that people would not notice what's going on, that the quality was still there. They were doing it. So the fact that during the pandemic, people, uh, first of all, go, go back to your point, reduce the number of SKUs every time there's recession, there's pressure, then marketing takes over. And it starts to, marketing, oh, maybe we'll do a red one, or maybe we'll do one that go backwards, or whatever other variety is there. And, and it goes back. That's just historical view. This is a general trend. It happens all the time, not necessarily, you know, the pandemic. The pandemic was a big shock, of course, and uh, it led to changes in demand and all this. But okay, I, my prediction is that uh, it goes back the way it was because marketing will take over and start coming up uh, with new, new varieties and new ways in order to get market share, in order to increase revenue on the margin. It's interesting to talk about complexity because in very few companies, when you increase the variety, increase the number of SKU, you increase complexity and you actually increase cost. And very few companies can uh, withstand the what I call the marketing pressure, can say, can do a real analysis. Okay, we have you know, 30 varieties. What will be the cost for all of them, not for, for the 31st one? Okay, we'll add the 31st one. The usual analysis is marginal analysis or incremental analysis. What will be the cost of adding a new one? Very few times people look at what will be the added cost on the on all the 30 other varieties that now we have to make 31. 
that's uh, that's hard harder to measure, and very few people do it. But the complexity increases for the entire portfolio, not only for the one, not only the uh, the added SKU. So complexity is it's hard to measure. Actually, there's no specific measure of, of complexity. It, it pops up in so many places. But uh, as I say, coming back uh, back to the point, when there's pressure, cost pressure in particular, people reduce complexity, but then it creeps back up. Speaking of that, you'll see AI and other technologies, uh, specifically robotics, they seem to be on the top of mind in almost every conversation that we're having with supply chain leaders. AI is in the title of your book. So from your perspective, how is AI and automation transforming supply chains today? Yes, today to some extent, a lot more in the longer term, let's say five to 10, 15 years. Right now we see robotics, of course, every warehouse operator is putting new robots in, uh, in the warehouse. That's, that's, a, that's a trend that started just before the pandemic and during the pandemic going through the roof. Warehouse are putting robots, you know, at the huge clip. Uh, in terms of AI in general, there's a, you know, we forget that AI is already here in the sense that uh, we use it, we don't even realize we're using it. So when we talk to um, any customer, any customer service function of a company, we, you know, it used to be press one if you want this, press two if you want this. Now you just speak, just speak. There's AI on the other side that picks up what you're saying. And try to uh, try to find a solution, but we're not even you know excited about it. It's kind of no big deal because we're used to it. So there's AI in a lot of the things you do. I don't know if you guys use a program called uh, Grammarly, which uh, fixes your writing. There's an AI that fixes your writing. Uh, it's like uh, it's not quite Chat uh, ChatGPT, but it fixes existing writing, and it also gives you comment as you write. It's like a, a, a souped-up Microsoft Word. So there's a lot of these things that are already already happening. I, something that are interesting, maybe, and more in my wheelhouse. I wrote a lot about resilience and risk management. If you, there, I know some companies. Few, I must admit, at this point, that try to develop risk management strategy and part of this is finding out what is the financial health of critical suppliers so the traditional way to find out was looking at the den and red street um, and other financial statement but these are backwards looking them at least one and usually two quarters behind so you're looking it's, it's a back looking view it doesn't help you to find out what's going on right now and then you can do it. This is as people are looking at this. You can do only so many, and companies may have tens of thousands of tier one suppliers, let alone deeper suppliers, deep tier suppliers. Companies are using large language model in order to look at all their suppliers, and for each suppliers, look at the social media, regular media, try to find out if there are executives leaving, if there are lengthening term of payment to their suppliers if they have some failed project, and if their deliveries are not 100%, this, will, this gives an indication that right now something is going awry. 
in this supplier, and the response will be to send a person there to find out what's going on, to actually uh, uh, inspect it. So this is something that could not be done without large language model that can look at uh, tens of thousands of suppliers and look at a lot of information on each one of this uh, of this supply, and of course, huge computing power to do uh, to do all this. So these are kind of examples that there are many others, of course, in manufacturing and in many other areas. Uh, yes, yeah, so, you know, when we talk about technology, uh, I think to some degree automation and robotics, but certainly uh, the discussion around AI. We've had congressional hearings on threat of AI. From your perspective. Do we need to fear AI or automation in general in supply chain? You know, the discussion on this is wide ranging. And when you say in general, there are people on extremes on both sides. There are people like Bill Gates, Yuval Harari, who wrote in, in The Economist a very interesting article thinking that the ChatGPT and similar program can be the end of democracy, the end of the human race. On the other hand, there are people just as, as credentials who think that this uh, AI will usher in an age of plenty and will have no medical solutions, no, uh, no ways of growing plants, no way of fighting climate, uh, climate change, everything will be great. As always, you know, I, I, I think the truth is, of course, in the middle, but it's hard to find out what, what's right. A lot of the angst, by the way, is about job losses. I must say that, of course, nobody knows the future. So when nobody knows what's going on, when we do forecasting, every type of forecasting, we look in the past. So I, large part of my book, or I don't know, part of my book is looking at the various industrial revolutions and documenting the fact that people always thought this time it's different. Well, it was not. Every time, few jobs were lost, but many, many more jobs were created. And you can see, with all the angst about job losses, the U.S. is at, what is it, 3.5, 3.6% unemployment, historically low unemployment, and lots of positions open, despite all the headlines about companies shedding off some, uh, some people. There's still very low unemployment in the, uh, uh, in the United States. So it's hard to justify the high level of, uh, of anxiety. In some, in some sense, it is understandable because we know the people who might lose their job. We look at the supermarket when you have the automated teller machines, basically. Customers are checking out themselves and say, okay, these people may lose, some of these people may lose their jobs. We don't know yet all the new industry and the new jobs that will be created. So one example, with technology, it usually increased jobs in the same industry when they implement the technology, but it also creates new industries. So an example is Ford in the beginning of the 20th century put in the assembly lines. Before that, there were about several thousand people working for Ford while building one car at a time, teams of, of artisans basically building one car at a time. They put the production line, the assembly line, and the number of employees of Ford went from a few thousand to 150,000 in the heydays of the Model T. But this was not the main impact of the assembly line. The assembly line created cars that were a lot more affordable. Because cars were affordable, people built highway, hotel, motel, restaurant, 
a whole industry with millions of jobs developed. The whole hospitality industry developed. And this was not Henry Ford's intent when he started you know, putting in the assembly line. He changed the jobs of the people who work for Ford, the number of job increases, but then there were adjacent industries that created almost as a side effect. This is what is so hard about predicting what will be the jobs in, you know, in the future. Clearly, we know there'll be more jobs in technology, but there'll be a lot of other jobs. Very hard to predict. You'll see. One of the topics that we talk to supply chain leaders is about their digital transformation. It seems to have taken on an extraordinarily um, high focus for a lot of organizations. And yet, what we're hearing is that the transformations really aren't delivering the results that they anticipated. So from your perspective, is automation or technology enough to take our supply chains to the next level of performance? You know, you have to look at the past. It, it helps a lot. What is it? Arrow, who was the Nobel laureate economist from MIT, who wrote during the third industrial revolution, when we just, computers were coming in, software, he wrote, you can see computers everywhere, but not in the productivity numbers. Where it, but then it took time and we start seeing productivity. I think it's the same thing. There's a lot of new technology, new automation. Right now, we did not find the secret sauces of how to make people work better with computers, how to make the combination work better. We still have workforce that is not used to work with high level of automation, and it takes time to train a whole workforce as jobs are changing and as even management is not sure how the job are changing and when it is best to, uh, to integrate people with, uh, with automation. And we see a lot of uh, trial and error. I uh, visited the plant of uh, Mercedes in Germany. The plant has people, uh, you know, in the plant, people holding iPad-like devices and running robots. And then, to my surprise, talk to them, they reduce the number of robots and put more people in. What's going on here? Everybody's digitizing and you go the other way. Say, so, yes, the digital is too rigid. We now build on the assembly line, EVs and hybrid and internal combustion engine with all, you know, German are ordering cars the way they like it with all the options. It is too volatile. And we need people who can who deal better with, uh, with the volatility than any algorithm that we can develop. It takes a lot of trial and error and see, give you another, and there are various ways of integrating people into automation. One way is that people are in the loop. For example, the, the workers in Amazon uh, warehouses, they are sitting in one place, the beans are coming to them, they do some operation, pick up, and the beans go away and a new bean is coming. So they're kind of in the flow. Then there's the other model when people are monitoring and are not in the flow. So for example, when you talk to your customer service uh, um, organization and there's talking words and somebody else uh, and the AI basically answers, the AI can deal with simple problems. At one point, either you get frustrated or the AI realizes that it doesn't know the solution and it kicks it up to a human. So here's a combination when the AI works on the simpler problem and there's human coming in to work on the more complex problem. And when you have to understand how simple the problem can be, I remember years ago being in a Dell call center 
and realizing that almost half the calls were my computer doesn't work. And then the customer service representative will say, well, you know, you have to plug it into the electrical outlet and then you have to turn it on. This was half the calls. So you don't need people to man such a customer service center. This can be done by computers, by AI. So that's what's going on now. There are several models of how AI working with, uh, with computers, uh, with, uh, with uh, humans. Some of it we all understand. Some of it are still trying and error. So I agree. For the most stuff, for the most part, we're still trying to figure it out. In general, it will take a lot longer to see the productivity numbers out of, uh, out of digitization. Uh, Yossi, you just uh, just really tackled what I was going to ask you next, which was about you know the future of work because supply chain, you know, at the end of the day, is still a lot about getting something from point A to point B. There's still a lot of mechanical, um, you know, or manual processes. Just taking what you've just talked about, if you were summing up, how do you see the future of work in supply chain evolving? Talk about supply chain management. So there are work in the warehouse and driving the trucks. And there's work in uh, planning, managing, you know, monitoring um, uh, supply chains. In fact, one of the biggest angst of, of people is that the new AI may start displacing managerial jobs, white collar jobs. Not only the robots may be replacing people, you know, blue collar people. Not sure. Uh, first of all, with um, uh, several, you know, first of all, when, when, when activity becomes less expensive, for example, because it requires less people, there's more of it. Example, in the early 70s, ATMs were getting to be widely used. There were about 300,000 tellers in the United States, and everybody thought that there'd be no more tellers in 10 years. Turns out today there are over 600,000 tellers. Why? Because opening a bank branch became so much less expensive when a lot of the work is done by uh, through the ATMs or online that it becomes very it became very inexpensive to open a branch. So I don't know about you know any other places, but when you walk to the street of Newbury Street in Boston or any other downtown street, every third storefront is a bank. So there's now a lot more bank branches. So there are a lot more people working in this. We talked before about the, uh, the for example, an adjacent uh, area when something developed that one, uh, one does not expect. And of course, there's a whole issue of, of technology. We, you know, before uh, Google searches, we never had the people optimizing Google, um, Google ads, for example. Uh, so there's a lot of new, new profession in the, in the tech. When we talk about supply chains specifically, we see there will be a lot more automation on the, on the floor, so to speak, but it's not gonna happen quickly. It will take much longer than people realize. Example from other fields, in 1892, AT&T developed the, uh, the uh, automatic telephone exchange. Until then, there were mostly women sitting there and plugging, you know, plugs into hall, connecting people. By 1950, there were still 350,000 telephone exchange operators. Only by 1980, the job basically disappeared. It means it took nine decades for the innovation to go through the, uh, through the economy. Things are 
on a lot, a lot slower than people think, and the evolution is a lot slower for a variety of reasons. For example, unions are in many cases on in the way. Regulations are in many cases on in the way. For example, in it, Italy, disallowed the use of ChatGPT, and we know we know uh, the US, EU, other countries are talking about regulating modern AI. And then there's the issue of acceptance. Today's airliner, whether it's 787 or A350, can basically go gate to gate with no pilots. Very few of your audience will go on a metal tube that flies at 35,000 feet across the Atlantic when there's nobody in the cockpit, even when it's uh, you know, monitored from control room down on Earth. It, it's, you need somebody in charge. The same way, we'll see what will be the impact or the acceptance of uh, people going on the highway with autonomous truck with no drivers running behind them at, at, I don't know, 80 miles an hour. And that can be, you know, disconcerting. So we'll see what is, if people will, will accept this. So there'll be a similar fight to what the railroads were mounting against long combination vehicles with all the scary ads of mothers, you know, seeing trucks coming onto them. We'll see if this, so there's a whole issue of social acceptance of a lot of this, uh, of this innovation. As I said, some of it already here. I mean, we use Google Maps. It has AI built into it, looking at the, when it gives you the, uh, what will be the congestion close to your destination half an hour from now, it actually used some forecasting and try, uh, try to put some uh, forecasting together using, using basically machine learning to try to get you a good time and try to choose the right route. So, it, but it happens in the background. We don't even think about it. How do I see the future of work in supply chain evolving? I would say the number one thing is slowly. The nature, I don't see too many jobs disappearing. I see the nature of jobs changing, just like the nature of jobs in Amazon warehouse is now different in the sense that the items are coming to the picker rather than picker go, go to the item. Okay, it's changing, but still there. There are 1.2 million warehouse workers for, for, for Amazon. Jobs may be changing. There'll be more working with technology, but I don't see big changes happening fast. Over time, yes, we'll see some changes. Yossi, last question. Um, obviously, you talk to a lot of supply chain professionals and the leaders out there. What are the you know two or three things that you're telling them to pay attention to? We've gone through a whole host of challenges and opportunities. How do they prepare? What, what are you focusing on? What should they be focusing on? It's really, I talk about supply chain leaders, more business leaders in general. One of the new challenges that I see that has nothing to do with technology is the polarization of the workforce and the community, political polarization. How should companies respond? I, we saw all the cases, whether it's Target or Disney or, or uh, the beer, but like, how should company respond when in the community they're in or the, when there are pressures from certain groups? When you know that whatever they do, they'll alienate the other half of the population. I mean, we are bifurcating society. So how to deal with it? That to me is one challenge. Companies used to think that they better avoid any political stand. Uh, they may not have, you know, they're under pressure to take political stand. And with the downside that comes with it of alienating the other side, 
whatever whatever stand they take. So I, I am not sure how this is going to be. So the companies are just, will have to find ways of, uh, of dealing with it. In terms of focusing attention on what come next, specifically in, uh, in supply chain, because of the pandemic and the, the Russian action in, in Ukraine, people are focusing on resilience. And it is, in fact, in, for many companies, taking the attention away from sustainability and fighting global warming. Because we always say that the, the one thing, the one constant is change. Today, it's more so than ever. And when companies are even putting in software, they're putting in software that can help them reformulate and redesign and replan supply chain much faster than before. The ability to put in parts or materials from new suppliers and make sure that they can be qualified at a much faster rate. So building in this, these capabilities is what many companies are focused on, which is the result of not only the pandemic, it's the pandemic, it's the political situation, it's the geopolitical situation, it's the fear about China. All of this is creating unease, uncertainty, and, and the need to prepare. Companies are, are actually, many of them are engaged in doing just that. Yossi, really tremendous uh, information. There's always a lot more to unpack and follow the up. Rebound on. Is a joint is production the of the Association Special for Supply Chain Yossi Management Chetty. and Be Supply sure to look Chain for his new book, The Magic and For more information, I'm also be sure to visit ASCM.org.com. ASCM Connect join us again on September 11th, 13th. You can find out more about that at ASCM.org. Finally, a special thanks to you for joining us on this episode of The Rebound. We hope we'll deck for the next episode. For The Rebound, I'm Abe Eskenazi. And I'm Bob Trumbull. All the best, everybody. Thanks.